Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast, not the Marty's Miss America podcast. This is volume 52, and it's going to be a unique one. We're going to spend this week kind of reliving the 145th Kentucky Derby. I was there on behalf of Sports Center and Get Up and various other platforms uh, for ESPN, and I love covering that event. It's the second year that I've done it, and both years I've seen history. Uh, in 2018, I saw Justify win with jockey Mike Smith and trainer Bob Baffert, which was the first steps, the first leg towards the 13th Triple Crown that has ever been earned. And I knew I was witnessing history as I watched Justify dominate the field in 2018. I did not know I was watching history as maximum security. And his jockey, Luis Saez, sped past us to what we perceived to be victory in that 145th Kentucky Derby. It was only the beginning at that point. And as you guys know, I fancy myself as a storyteller. It is my favorite part of this job. And so I'm going to try to just walk you guys through everything that I experienced that day. But in terms of breaking down exactly what happened and having an opinion on the decision by the trio of stewards to disqualify maximum security, I'm going to lean on a real expert. Jerry Bailey, a Hall of Fame jockey who really helps me out a ton on Sports Center uh, on ESPN during each Triple Crown race at the Kentucky Derby, at the Preakness, and at the Belmont Stakes. I am calling upon Jerry to give me his expertise on what he saw and its merit. And what a valuable resource. I always appreciate Jerry's time both on television and now on the podcast. You guys will enjoy that too. You'll learn a lot. But before we get to my 145th Kentucky Derby experience, I want to tell you guys about Tissot watches. Tissot is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. This graduation season, get the NBA fan in your life a Tissot watch. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch. For those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price, shop right now at us.tisoshop.com. I have been 43 years old for two weeks now, and my friend Travis has gotten me no Tiso watch. I'm st- I-, I wait with bated breath every day for the package to show up at the door, but the FedEx man comes, UPS man comes, the mailman comes, and I ain't got no watch. I'm Travis. working on it. I first had to take care of myself and get the Tito's vodka shipped to me. I'll work on you next, Marty. Give it time. We need to discuss this. So y'all need to understand something. Travis is a hustler. So we're on the Marty and McGee program on Saturday morning. And uh it I forget what was broached. Actually, you know what was broached was the fact that all everybody else was sober. Three, two. Right. We were on the Marty and McGee program on Saturday morning. And the fact was broached that... Me, Ryan McGee, and Randy Heritage were all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because not a single one of us had a single drop the night before, which is unorthodox. I will tell you, going into the Marty and McGee extravaganza, we're normally partly cloudy at best. And then there's Travis. Travis, he, 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 
His weather report was stormy enough for all three of the rest of us. And there's a reason. Because Travis is a hustler. <laughs> Why don't you tell us, Travis, about your party pack from your friends at Tito's? So I was, it was actually, it first started when I was at the Masters. I forget who I was talking with, uh, one of your friends and talking about how Tito, the guy that invented Tito's vodka, has these crazy stories. I'm like, he'd be an awesome guest for this podcast. I mean, this alcohol is what we do. So I reach out to him. How come he's not on yet? They said he was unavailable. You're working on it. He, they, they said he was unavailable. He's got a lot of stuff. And she was like, but curious, just why are you interested to have, you know, him on an ESPN podcast? I'm like, well, I heard some, he had some good stories. And quite frankly, I pretty much all I do is drink Tito. So I was, <laughs> so I was interested. And she goes, Oh, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, if you'd like, we could send you a, a goodie box. And so I'm thinking like a hat, some cups, you know, stuff like that. And. Lo and behold, a week later, I get a fifth of vodka, four little small cups, and a Tito's bandana. Oh, do you wear that every day to work? I Well, see, I need to figure out if I'm allowed to. I figure I could wear it on Saturday mornings at least. Here is the – we have a new plan starting right now. On Saturday mornings, henceforth, you know me. I wear a bandana on Marty and McGee. I wear a bandana on Marty and McGee about once a month. What's the proper way to, t- to wear it and how to put it together? Like – the, the proper way to wear it is like this. You uh, All right, it's a big square, right? You yes. put your square down on the floor or on a table or on your bed or whatever, and then you take one corner and you go to the opposite corner to make a big triangle, okay? And then you turn it parallel to uh, where, you're, where you're standing, and you fold it one over the next, probably about a three-inch fold. And keep folding it until you have a line, a line of bandana. And then you take the line of bandana and you place it upon your forehead and you wrap it around your melon and you tie it in the back. Now here is a key. There's a key that some people don't realize about tying the bandana. You have to tuck in the wings on the back once you create the double knot. Double knot it, not a bow, Travis. Double knot it in the back. And then tuck the wings in. And you will look like Danielson from the Karate Kid with a Tito's banner across your forehead. And the world will be right. I will I will work on that. And with this amazing flow that I have going on right now, it should look spectacular. So thank you, yeah, Tito's. My flow, my flow got a lot of commentary at the Kentucky Derby. It had a some lot. height to it. Yeah, man. It had a lot of height to it. I, I don't normally spend a whole lot of time on my hair. And... At the Derby, I had even less time to spend on it because those are really early mornings. When you're covering the, the Kentucky Derby, you're up and gone from your hotel every day around 5.30, something like that. Well, you, also a, you also had a show to do at, in the morning, too. We had TV to make on Friday morning, every morning. On Thursday morning, we – so I'll just walk you through it. All right, let, let's just get to Derby weekend, and we'll get to the hair within that – within the storytelling. So – you get there on Wednesday evening, and I got checked into my hotel, which was egregiously priced. Um, it is remarkable how much money must be spent in order to attend the Derby and cover the Derby and whatnot, because it's a lot like it was when I covered NASCAR. The hotel rates go up, Travis, and they go up quite a bit. And so I get checked into my hotel uh, in downtown Louisville, and immediately... I am informed that the favorite entering the week 
Omaha Beach was a scratch. He had, uh, I'm going to just call it an upper respiratory issue. Um, he had an issue with his epiglottis and that required surgery. And so he was a scratch and that was a super bummer, man. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a super bummer. Richard Mandela, his trainer, Omaha Beach's trainer, hadn't been at the Derby in 15 years. And here he is. He's coming in there, man, as the favorite. And even Bob Baffert, the greatest of all time, the greatest trainer in history of horse racing, says facetiously, but joking with reporters that day on Wednesday, I'm going to go ahead and start looking ahead to the Preakness. Because he felt like Omaha Beach looked that good. And then Omaha Beach scratches. So we're kind of scrambling. Okay, our entire day Thursday has now changed. My producer, Chris Kugler, who is brilliant and knows everything about horse racing, she and I had a plan. We had pre-produced all of these pieces. We would pre-produced a piece about Bob Baffert's legacy. We would pre-produced a piece about the cavalry charge where – uh, when the gate first opens, it is chaos, man. It is absolute chaos because you have 20 horses, wound up being 19, but 20 horses in the starting gate. And when that thing goes off, man, it is absolute bedlam. And, and I love what Hall of Fame jockey Jerry Bailey said to me on Saturday morning on Sports Center. You can't win the Kentucky Derby in the first 50 yards, but you sure can lose it. The reason that we did this piece was because last year Baffert said to us that he called it pinball. He said it's like the Indianapolis 500 when those guys are going down into turn one at the Indy 500 and they're just banging all over each other and cutting each other off and trying to get lanes and whatnot. And so we thought that was a really interesting analogy, and so we went and produced this entire piece. So we have all of this content that we had going in, and we wanted to get sound from guys like Bob Baffert, Todd Pletcher, um, various trainers, because that way we could bolster the pieces that we had already produced and beef them up with timely commentary. And then we learned that Omaha Beach is a scratch on Wednesday evening. So all of a sudden, Thursday morning becomes, okay, we have to get reaction on that from all of these folks. And it became our news story, and we spent Thursday evening, Friday, uh, Friday, we, we did pieces on it, and um, it was a very unique experience. And then I show up to the racetrack on Friday morning, and I have a text from Todd Pletcher, who is a two-time Kentucky Derby winning trainer, and with whom I've gotten close, and that text tells me that Mike Smith will be aboard Cutting Humor, one of his horses. And that's big news because Mike Smith rode Justify to the Triple Crown last year. He was originally supposed to be on Omaha Beach, but when Omaha Beach had to scratch, it seemed that Mike might be rideless. And now here he is. This Hall of Famer is going to be on Todd's horse. Suddenly we have more news. And, in fact, we break news. And so that became interesting. And before we get to Saturday, I just want to back up to Thursday for a minute. So every Thursday at the Kentucky Derby, I go to dinner at Jeff Ruby's Steakhouse in Louisville with my buddy Tony Christensen, his wife Lisa, and some of our other friends. We go every year. Tony's one of my best friends. He's a phenomenal person. And 
uh, a hardcore Louisville Cardinal and a wonderful, wonderful example in that Louisville community. So we go to dinner and we're sitting there at dinner and we have some other buddies who are very famous and some of those guys are there and one of them is standing at our table and he happened to know Travis Tripp and all of y'all know how much I love Travis Tripp. He is the soundtrack of my youth. He's one of the guys who sang the songs that shaped the person that I am as a kid. And so I'm sitting there, and Travis walks up to our table, and he says hello to my buddy Joe Mulvihill. And Joe looks at Travis and goes, man, you, you, you need to meet Marty. And Travis goes, man, I know. I'm a huge fan. I follow you on everything. He's like, well, actually, I, I'd love to talk to you about some stuff. Travis, son, I about fell out of my chair. Did you do? Was this like the MJ believe, story? Was this like MJ when you're like? I couldn't <laughs> believe it, it. It wasn't. It wasn't the. <laughs> thanks, MJ. It wasn't that, but it was shock. I was completely floored that uh, that I you know met him and shook his hand and said hello and got the opportunity to tell him. Look, man, if you go through his catalog. If you go through Travis Tritt's catalog, it is as good as it gets. He has hit after hit after hit, and they are awesome songs, and they are as relevant as today as they were in 1995. And I just was so pumped. How good Goodyear and, is using one of his songs for the Dale Jr. commercial that's the, the running the I'm Gonna Be Somebody. Well, that's where I was going. So that was one of my daddy's favorite songs. And so to be able to tell Travis what that song means to me and how it's a connection point and a vehicle to my father was very special to me. And to be able to look him in the eye and say it. Um, maybe we'll be able to get him on the Marty Smith's America podcast sometime. But anyway, that's an aside. So let's fast forward to Saturday. Saturday was absolutely unbelievable. And... The, throughout the day, the day was great. We made a lot of, of, of television. We did Marty McGee and then we did all kind of sports center and whatnot. And my buddy Dale Hart Jr., the 15 time NASCAR most popular driver, the two time Daytona 500 champion, and one of my very best friends on the planet was there for NBC. NBC has the coverage of the Kentucky Derby and Jr. was there to really chronicle the nuances and the traditions and whatnot on their pre-race broadcast with our buddy Rutledge Wood, who also does those types of things for NBC. And so Junior came on Sports Center, and we had a great time and chatted about what he was doing and the things he's getting to do with NBC. are It's remarkable. In the last year, he's done the Olympics. He's done the Super Bowl. He's now done the Kentucky Derby, and he will be at the Indianapolis 500 in two weeks. For you, how cool is that? Because you've covered him and you know him, but to see him kind of in your profession now covering it, what was that like as a friend to see him doing that? It's fun because I see how passionate and and excited he is to do it. I can see the juice. And as we discussed that on Saturday morning on Sports Center, it was so cool to see his excitement about – how big Churchill Downs is, how gorgeous the animals are. It's like so many things in this life. It's hard to fall in love unless you've actually lived it. 
And when you go to these horse races, especially a spectacle like the Derby, and you see how stunningly beautiful the animals are, it's a different thing. And then it's like, yeah, I said this to him, as he gets to know the trainers and all that, it, it takes it to a whole other level. My passion for it is a direct result of the relationships that I built with Baffert and Pletcher. Uh, I am crazy about it now. And that leads us to what happened once the race began. And um, so they do a thing in the paddock before the riders mount their horses to head out to the track to be put in the starting gate. And they parade the horses around the paddock and fans crowd around the outer edges of it and they crowd the balconies um, where the suites are and the stands are so they can see the riders get on their horses and Baker Mayfield was there and he gave the directive, you know, riders, uh, mount your horses. Really cool moment. And it's pouring rain and it's soggy and it's it's sloppy already and you're like all right this is going to be this is going to be interesting and then the riders walk out to the to the track and we follow them out to the track and so it's such a neat moment to file in behind the riders and the horses and walk through the corridor underneath the stands and out onto the muddy racetrack and that's where I get the blessing of watching the Kentucky Derby. I stand on the track and the horses run right by me. And it is such a spectacle. It's a spectacle anyway, but there's something about that slop and that mud. It is a beautiful ballet. It is majestic to watch them go. And so they're off. And they're coming down the front stretch at us and maximum security gets out front, and Maximum Security never relinquishes the lead. Maximum Security finished that race as clean as could be. And we thought, wow, man, we had another wire to wire. It was a great race. He won by a, uh, one and three quarters lengths. And we were fl- floored and thrilled. And it's a it's the emotion that you feel during those two minutes and even not just the two minutes, but the emotion that you feel in the hour leading up to it from about six o'clock until that thing goes off. There's an anxiousness and there's an electricity and there's an energy in the air that there are at very few places. You feel it before you feel it in the lead up to the Indianapolis 500. You feel it in the lead up to even I guess the national championship, I I was standing on the field at the 50-yard line as Alabama and Clemson were warming up this year. And there was some juice, man. And that lead-up is a wonderful feeling. You just don't get that many places in life. As a really important sporting event is about to begin. And there are certain sporting events that are American institutions. And... The Super Bowl is certainly one of those. The Masters is certainly one of those. The Daytona 500 and the Indianapolis 500 are both certainly in that contingent because they transcend the sport. And there is no doubt that the Kentucky Derby is one of those. And so off they go. 
and the race seemed to be great, and it seemed to be uh, another tremendous moment in the sport. And then all of a sudden, and they're interviewing, NBC is interviewing the winner, and we're standing there on the racetrack waiting on Maximum Security and Luis Saez to make their way back to us towards the winner's circle. And NBC's doing their interview, and people are celebrating, and the crowd is crazy behind me, right behind me. And all of a sudden, we're like, we're waiting a long time. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and 10 minutes goes to 15 minutes, and it goes to 20 minutes. And about 10 minutes in, we realize that there's what's going on. Something, Something's going on. And we knew they were reviewing it. And then all of a sudden, up on the tote board, the scoreboard, the seven comes off the board. It just disappears off the board. And there was an audible, noticeable gasp that washed across the 150,000 people that were there. We all started looking around at each other like, wait a minute, they really just took this victory away. And... The 20 is next, and they award Country House victory in the Kentucky Derby. And as I was standing there, the boos were raining down from the stands. People were absolutely furious. And the the range of emotions was so interesting in that time frame, in that 23-minute span standing there on the racetrack in the immediate aftermath. The scene was a confluence of evolving emotions for everybody there as an unprecedented decision unfolded. It was confusion. It was omission. It was frustration. It was elation. It was bewilderment. It was shock. It was anger. It was euphoria. And I've never really seen anything quite like it. In the aftermath, many people have compared it to the NFC Championship game with the pass interference call. Many people have compared it to Auburn, Virginia in the NCAA tournament and the foul that was called and the missed double dribble that was called. And there's a lot of comparisons being made. But one thing that is for certain is I don't, I don't recall, and and Travis, if this has happened, just cut this part out. I don't recall ever in the history of sport a victory being taken. Well, this was the first in the Kentucky Derby. The only other time was the the horse, I believe, tested positive for something. But uh, nineteen sixty eight. But for something it was on a the drug track. omission. Yeah, this was the first. Um, this has never happened in the history of the Kentucky Derby. So I'll give you I'll give you an idea of what my post race was like this will give you guys kind of a, a glimpse into to how it goes so we when that happened we immediately knew that the story changed the story was not the winner anymore the story was the loser and so we made a beeline to try to find jason service who is the trainer for maximum security and jay we found him he was He's making his way across the racetrack and then up through the stands to get to the suite area where his ownership was stationed 
so, and he had not at that point, he didn't know what was going on. And so we all thought it was myself and it was several reporters. Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated was there and several of the ladies and gentlemen who cover the sport on a much more saturated basis than I do. And I will say this to you about Jason's service. He was in a crushing moment of emotional despair and he could not have been more classy. He answered everything he could to the best of his ability. And we had a group conversation with him, which I actually put on Twitter. If you guys want to see that, I taped it with my phone. And uh, that's on Twitter, uh, at Marty Smith ESPN. And then we waited. Jason went into the sweet kind of box area where he watched the replay. And then he came out of that box, and I kind of followed him and asked him for further comment about a couple of things. Again, he couldn't have been more accommodating to me, and I'm so appreciative of that. I'm going to write him a letter. You could see the raw emotion on his face during that interview, too. Like He he was still trying to process everything, and to give that time says something. Because well, we, we see opponent, uh, competitors in their sports after – crushing losses and how they handle the media and it it blows up in their face and the way that he handled it though was uh with class one thing that needs to be noted and this is really confusing to people that don't follow horse racing i was in the aftermath of all of this and i my mind was spinning a thousand miles an hour like what just happened this is extremely confusing for consumers of the kentucky derby that aren't ardent weekly horse racing fans and this needs to be stated because this is a very important variable this was not a scenario where maximum security's path was reviewed based on a steward inquiry this decision to disqualify maximum security was based on the fact that two riders objected the riders aboard country house and long range toddy They objected to the path that maximum security took, which I spoke with Bill Mott after the race, who is country house's trainer, and he said it's a very difficult call, but it's the right call by the letter of the law because two horses' opportunity to make the board or to win the Kentucky Derby were impeded. For me, it is very sad. In the aftermath of this, those journalists that I discussed earlier, uh, folks like Marty McGee, who joined the Marty and McGee show randomly. That's a story in and of itself on Saturday morning. And Tim Layden, uh, whom I respect so much from Sports Illustrated and NBC. I mean, countless journalists weighed in on this. And it's all over the board. Some people felt like it was an embarrassment to the sport, and some people feel like it was not only the right call, but a necessary call for the integrity of the sport. Now, I can't really weigh in on all of that, but I do feel this. I feel like as I was standing there on the track, watching this unfold, and then being at the track until way late that night, and all of the passers-by, from the industry saying hello to me. I feel like some spirit was stripped. 
I feel like some of the wonder of the Kentucky Derby was stripped. And that's all I can really comment on was my emotion. I can't go breaking down the rules for you guys. But I know, I know what the feeling in the arena was. And the feeling in the arena was all of those emotions that I discussed earlier, depending on where your allegiance was. Travis, I can't fathom the money that shifted on that decision. And look, the stewards don't care about that. The stewards care about a race run by the rules. But when there's a horse who is completely clean, who led wire to wire, uh, is stripped of a win, it just, uh, it took some spirit. And so I know that's a rambling explanation of everything that I went through. I'll tell you, Travis, there was a moment that was just, and this is where the spirit part comes for me. This is the reason that I, I felt the spirit of it. I was standing there on the track, ankle deep in mud, and as the decision was made, I had my camera, my phone was capturing maximum security. He went, as, as we waited for the decision to be made, we were standing there and maximum security was doing his cool out. And he took so many laps on the, on, right in front of us there. I started to joke with his outrider that I should jump on and, and take a couple spins there. And so I had my phone on him in the moment that the decision was announced to the crowd. And as I have my phone on maximum security, Country House walks right through the frame. And you could see the euphoria on all of his connections. They are laughing. They are smiling. They're high-fiving each other. They're hugging each other. All of this is on my Twitter feed, too, if you guys want to check it out, at Marty Smith ESPN. And in that same frame, maximum security is being led away back to the barn. And the interesting part about it to me is the response to that video is such that everybody can see that maximum security knew. They can see he was on his way to the winner's circle and now he's going back to the barn. He knew. And it was, it was a very sad thing to witness. And, uh, look, it's not my job to judge, uh, what, what anybody says or does it's my job to report what happened but that report for me is i felt some spirit stripped and that spirit is only exacerbated by the fact that gary west the owner of maximum security told the today show on nbc on monday morning that they will not run the preakness and that is a shame too. I was really looking forward to an opportunity to cover maximum security going back to the Preakness on May 18th to try to avenge what happened in the Kentucky Derby. So that's kind of where I am on all that. As I stated earlier uh, in the introduction to this podcast, I can tell stories. I can do my very best to help transfer the emotion of a moment to those that weren't there. But I can't break down what happened exactly the way it should be. That's why I'm so thrilled that 
my man Jerry Bailey, as I stated earlier, a Hall of Fame jockey himself, is kind enough to give us a couple minutes here to share his expertise and his perspective on what happened. Jerry, thanks so much for your time. I'll start simply by asking you, what is your reaction to the fact that the stewards decided to disqualify maximum security? Well, Marty, uh, initially, in, in real time, I didn't see it. Um, I was watching uh, the horse come through on the rail, and I, I just I just had taken my eyes off maximum security. Um, but as soon as I uh, saw, got the ability to watch several angles, it, it appeared to me that, that they made right, the right call. And, and here's why. Um, maximum security, without a doubt, was the best horse in the race, clearly. And I feel terrible for his connections, people that bet on him. But if you go by the letter of the law, the stewards made the right call because in racing, just like in driving, you cannot change lanes unless you're clear. I mean, if you're driving, especially on a turn, and you don't stay in your lane and there's a car next to you, you're going to hit him. And then if there's a car outside that one, you're going to hit them too, or the middle car is going to hit him. So it causes a chain reaction, which is exactly what happened on, on the turn for home in the Kentucky Derby on Saturday. Maximum security was running in about lane one and a half or two. And he shifted from that lane all the way to about lane four without proper clearance from the horse next to him and then consequently the horse next to him. So, yeah, I, I think um, I think he should have been disqualified because the rules say that if you cost another horse a placing and it's almost certain that because of that interference caused by maximum security, war of will, number one, mm-hmm. would have placed better. He would have probably been in the money, not for the betters, but at least to, to get a check of the purse, a part of the purse money. So um, in the determination of the stewards, it cost him a placing, and therefore maximum security had to be disqualified. Jerry, one aspect of this that was vital in its evolution, but I'm not sure is getting enough credit, is the job Tyler Gaffleyone did as jockey of War of Will. So for those of you who may not know exactly how it all unfolded. When maximum security was coming around the turn, its jockey, Luis Saez, was unable to keep maximum maximum security in the same line. He pushed over to the right, and that is what the stewards deemed was illegal. It impeded War of Will's opportunity to advance. And... Uh, Jerry, I, I wonder what your perspective is on the job that Gaffleyone did, because from my perspective, it thwarted disaster. It was an amazing job that he did, and the horse, as a matter of fact. The horse was ter- tremendously athletic, because if you look at the tape, the legs of War of Will were caught up in between the legs, the back legs of maximum security. So um, it, it, this could have easily been a disaster. On Friday, they ran the Kentucky Oaks, the female version of the Kentucky Derby, and that same thing happened, and the horse fell. It just luckily, it was out of the starting gate just a few yards, so there were no trailing horses. The horses were all lined up pretty much still as they came out of the gate, and there was a horse that came over, impeded uh, a horse called Positive Spirit. That horse fell along with a jockey, but because there were no trailing horses, both got up uninjured. But if that would have happened... And it came close. It was a coin flip to whether it happened or not. 
if those legs would have got tangled a little further, then if War of Will falls, then probably at least two, maybe even five other horses fall, and it was a, it would have been uh, cataclysmic. It's the jockey's responsibility to keep the horse in its lane, right? What's that Correct. challenge, Jerry? What, what, what was that challenge for Luis Saez aboard Maximum Security? Okay, so um, there, there's a couple of nuances here that happened on Saturday that, that I, I will give Luis Saez a percentage of a pass here. Um, when these horses, which weigh about 1,000 pounds, when they're running, um, we can control them pretty good. We can keep them most times uh, w- within a couple of feet you know, of, of where they're supposed to be. Horses, when they go around the turn, as they were going at that point in the Kentucky Derby, they lead with their left leg first. And it, it, to give you an idea of what that's like, uh, if you see a motorcycle rider on a racetrack, they lean into the left turns when they're turning left, and then on the straights, they stand back straight again. Horses are the same way. On the turns, they go to their left lead because some triple force makes it easier for them to make the turn. When they straighten away, they're on the back stretch or the home stretch, they switch back and they start leading with their right foot first. Maximum security switched to his right lead prematurely while he was still trying to turn left. And it probably caught Luis Saez a little bit by surprise. His explanation was because he heard the crowd, the horse heard the crowd, it scared him and he switched back to his right lead, which will cause you to go right or at least quit turning left, which and essentially you're, you're crossing into the other horse's lane. And it's quite plausible that, that that happened. But the end result was Luis Saez had to be a little more careful not to let it continue once his, once his horse did that. Also, what people may not know is on each stride a horse takes, all four legs are off the ground for, for a split second. And if the horse veers right while he's leaving and, and all four feet are off the ground, you cannot steer him back left until those feet hit the ground again. So there's a moment in time where you're kind of helpless. And then when they hit the ground again, then you have to quickly straighten him up. And I think Luis Saez was partially at fault for not straightening his mount quick enough. What's the impact on the sport from this decision and how this all unfolded, Jerry? You know, I don't think there's a big negative impact. I mean, look, look this is, I think, I think a big reason why the stewards disqualified the horse. Yes, they, they were going by the letter of the law, but um, had they not disqualified him, then I think jockeys get in their mind that anything goes in the Kentucky Derby. It doesn't matter what you do. You can, you can pull a knife or a gun on a guy, and you're not going to be disqualified in the Kentucky Derby, which makes it a rougher race, which is a danger to both horse and human. So um, in that regard, I, I think the public should see it actually as a good thing. Uh, not the owner of maximum security, obviously. I feel terrible for them. But anything the stewards can do to make racing safer for both man and beast, uh, I think it should be viewed as a good thing. I cannot thank you enough, sir. Your insight is very keen and expertise. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Marty. Glad to help. Have a great one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Told you guys you'd learn. Jerry is just such a, a wealth of knowledge and such a tremendous resource for me as we try to make sense of all this and its place in history and what it means for the sport. I found his perspective on that to be very interesting because, uh, it is about integrity. And I love what he said, man. If they didn't make this call, then those jockeys would have feel like they had free reign over the Kentucky Derby and anything goes hell-bent, I'll be damned, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to go win this race. 
and those stewards made it real clear that they are going to uphold the letter of the law, no matter what anybody else thinks. Um, I do, I do want to say this. I wish the stewards took questions. Uh, I was a little taken aback that they chose to simply give a statement to the assembled media and not take any questions at all. Uh, I really think they should have. I think that they should have given us more perspective on what they were looking at, how they looked at it, why they looked at it, uh, how difficult the decision was, exactly why they made the decision, why it was important that they made the decision. There's myriad things I'd love to know. And we didn't get the opportunity to do that. So uh, that's that. But before we get out of here, Travis has been telling me for a couple days now anyway, that he had a surprise for me. And uh, I can't wait to hear what you have up your sleeve, dude. What you got? So on Thursday, while you're at the Derby, Dan Lebetard was talking about a topic, and the shipping container, at times, if they want to get him off that topic, they will make him go to the you know creative content that they have with ideas. Stu Gatz will rummage through with where all the topics are, and he'll pick out a piece of paper. Dan reads it. And that's what they talk about. And for the longest time, this has been undefeated. They've always changed the topic. And this is one time where Dan didn't like the question and mocked the producers. And it's a question I feel like you would love to have answered. So I'm going to let you hear it and go from there. All right. For those of you who do not know, before the previous segment, the Magic Creative content had been undefeated. Whenever it made an appearance, we were summoned to answer whatever the contents of that box asked us. Surprisingly, this particular question was horrific. What's your favorite number? Just a totally useless question. (laughs) But then I'm told during the break that Allison thinks number four is unlucky. She believes uh, number four, Hmm. uh, put it on the poll, Guillermo, at Levitard Show, is Allison the only person in the world who believes the number four is unlucky? (laughs) And that was supposed to be our conversational uh, starting point by some of the world's laziest producers who do things like, what is your favorite this? What is your favorite that? (laughs) Well, all right, Dano, uh, here's the problem, man. Being a number geek is awesome. And I am the ultimate number geek. I don't know if any of you guys are fans of Friday Night Lights, but Friday Night Lights is the single greatest series ever on television. It's awesome. I still don't understand why its ratings weren't better. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The storyline was awesome. The acting was awesome. The emotion was awesome. But anyway, any of y'all who are fans of Friday Night Lights know about some Buddy Garrity. I'm Buddy Garrity, man. I'm still living vicariously through my own high school experience. I'm still, man, I have my state championship ring. I, I mean, it, you know, my book's coming out in August and I wrote an entire chapter about my, about my high school football experience and not just my high school football experience, all of y'all's high school football experience. Anybody who played that game will relate so much to that chapter. Now, I say all that to say the greatest number in the world is number nine. I wore number nine in high school in football and in baseball you can't wear it in basketball did you know that travis yeah because of the, ref, the refs need to make the number that's with right. their hands that's right we may have discussed this in the, in the past but you can wear number nine in the nba and i think you can you can definitely wear it internationally but uh you can't wear it in high school or college because of the refs hands anyway that's neither here nor there i love the number nine i wear the number nine in every beer league you could imagine 
I wear the number nine in any fantasy camp. I wear the number nine every single day that I'm on your television. You just don't see it. I have the number nine. I have MS9 stitched on the cuff of my dress shirts. And I have MS9 stitched on the inside pocket of every single jacket that I wear on television. Except for one. I do have one jacket where my tailor wrote Marty Party. How about that? That jacket is nice too, by the way. Yeah, man. It's it's a very good jacket. Very sharp. Um, so I don't understand what Dan's issue is. I I guess that we need to we need to figure this out. We need to understand Dan's issue with what's your favorite number. I wonder Dan has a favorite number. He's just not giving it up. And to call his producers like that, the shipping container took a beating for that one. They did. They took a beat. And you know what? I, in this instance, look, I will lay on the tracks for Dan Lebetard. But in this instance, I got Mike Ryan's back. I got Roy's back. I got Chris's back. I got Guillermo's back. I'm telling you, man, I'm here for those guys this time. I also want to know why Allison thinks the number four is cursed. I do, too, because I was sitting there thinking when I heard Dan say that on that piece of sound you played, I'm trying to think of famous number fours. Let's see if we get a list on the interweb. Okay, best athletes to wear number four. Let's click this link. Here we go. Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr wore number four throughout his 12-year career as a National Hockey League icon. Let's see who else. Click. Lou Gehrig. Yep, Lou Gehrig. Gehrig didn't choose his number four. It merely denoted his position in the batting order, as was customary for the era. I did not know that. Did you know that? I had no idea. Well, well, now we do. Now we know why so many famous Yankees wore their number, I guess. Let's see. Like Gehrig, Mel Ott wore number four based on batting cleanup for the New York Giants. Joe Dumars. Oh, Joe Dumars wore number four for the Detroit Piston Bad Boys. Brett Favre wore number four for the Green Bay Packers and then the Minnesota Vikings. Adrian Dantley wore number four with the Utah Jazz. Scott Stevens, one of the best defensive defensemen in recent memory. Stevens won three Stanley Cup titles and a 2000 Conn Smythe trophy. Stevens didn't wear number four before joining the New Jersey Devils in 1991. Who else we got? Duke Des- Snyder. Deshaun Watson wears number four. Crit- I, that's where I was going to stop this, dude. That but was my line. I think that's I found out, boy. I, I think I found out why the number's cursed. Why? Jim Harbaugh wore number four when he's with the Colts and we know my feelings, so maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Harbaugh's the man. Eh. Don't let anybody tell you different. Eh, I, I, I would disagree. Harbaugh is the man. We know why you There's like him. There's a few athletes on here I've never heard of, I'll be honest with you. Adam Vinatieri, number four. Yeah, Adam Vinatieri. That's very good. That's a good pull. Uh, I'll, have to, I'll, I'll text Allison. She won't, go, she won't come on, but I'll, I'll text her. Maybe we can get an update next podcast. Yeah, we need to, we need to update this uh, on next week's. 53rd edition of the Marty Smith's America podcast. Why the jersey number four in Allison's mind is cursed. One thing is for sure. The number nine is not cursed. The number nine is forever. The number nine is a beacon in the darkness, ladies and gentlemen, and Dan Lebetard. One other thing that, uh, you know, if Dan stays mad at those guys, maybe he needs to get ZipRecruiter because he might be cleaning house and looking for some new new talent over there. Travis, uh, hiring used to be hard. Used to be. Used to be. Not anymore. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, confusing review processes. 
But today, hiring can be easy. And you only have to go to one place to get it done. That would be ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. The first day. That's pretty quick, as far as I'm concerned. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Nothing. Zip. Zero. For free. At this exclusive web address. And boy, it's a pretty one. ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-Y. ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We appreciate ZipRecruiter, man. They make this possible. We appreciate their commitment to the Marty Smith's America podcast. We certainly appreciate TSO as well. Travis, I'm, I'm going to go to the mailbox and see if my watch came when we get done here. Appreciate TSO. Thanks so much to you guys. Appreciate you guys listening. Thanks so much to Jerry Bailey for taking time out of his day. I bet he's done 9 million radio hits in the last couple of days after the Kentucky Derby. Travis, you did a great job. Uh, I don't know what you did, but you did a great job. I got and, myself uh, Tito's. That's what I did a great job you getting got Tito's. Yourself Tito's. You did do a great job getting yourself Tito's. <laughs> hey, sometimes that you get a good producer. Sometimes true. you get a drunk producer. Sometimes you show up completely inebriated. It happens to the best of us. And I'll wear that bandana uh, th- on Saturday. You better. You know what? I will too. I'm actually going to be in studio, I think, for the first time in like a month. Um, Thanks to Luis for uh, having the conviction to put us on and being crazy enough to do it. And we really appreciate Dan and his his crazy band of idiots because without those guys, what they've done for me is beyond measure. And I'm so appreciative of them, their friendship, their insight, their creative ability is unparalleled, and uh, they're just brilliant. I can't wait for y'all to read my chapter about them in the book. It's it's really, really funny. And as I do always, I want to close the, the podcast by thanking our military. We are free for a reason, and that reason is our men and women in uniform all around this world who sacrifice for us. You know, what we consider to be a bad day is typically laughable. Our bad days are pretty good most of the time, and those guys uh, – those guys really sacrifice for us and I hope they know how much I appreciate them and all my friends appreciate them and and you guys appreciate them. So thank you to our military. And that's what we have this week. I appreciate y'all. Uh, we'll see y'all next time around. We'll try to do better. Y'all be good. God bless America.